causes swelling, edema, and cerebral edema is not well tolerated, particularly in young women who have very tight brains and don't have room to swell. Yep. And that swelling will um, lead to the manifestations of um, sort of severe consequences of cerebral edema, like um, at worst seizures, coma, respiratory arrest, and yep. more mildly headaches, uh, visual disturbances, mm-hmm. and agitation to their own vision. Hi everyone, welcome back uh, to the podcast. We have um, three of us here today. I've got Siv, who um, is the education fellow here at King at the moment, who said whose stated aim is to try and take over the podcast. <laughs> and um, we've got Jess back. So Jess uh, did a podcast with us sometime last year on sepsis. Um, Jess is a, a senior ICU trainee who's working uh, here at King Edward at the moment as well and gave us a great presentation uh at one of our educational sessions on Tuesdays a few weeks ago on uh, the topic which we're going to discuss today, which is hyponatremia um, Very in pregnancy specifically mm-hmm. because it, uh, it's just, just described it as a huge topic. So we're just going to sort of hone in on uh, hyponatremia in pregnancy and not, not try and get lost down a rabbit hole. <laughs> we'll try. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So uh, thanks, guys. Um, this, is a, this is a really interesting topic, actually. Um, we were going to kick off with just a little brief summary of like a, um, uh, a case that um, occurred. You obviously anonymised, but and from what we can remember, we may may have remembered things a little bit. Um, we may have assumed a few things, but um, it's easy to remember or, or think about this topic. I think if you've had a if you've got a case or something to sort of pin all your knowledge to. You know, it's pretty common as well. The case that we're about to describe as well. You know, yeah. happened yeah. a lot of places <coughs> multiple times. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Jess, you can remember it slightly better than us because you have got some notes in front of you. Do you want to yeah, outline yeah. the case? Yeah, I'll abbreviate it quite a bit and yeah, that's fine. talk about just the, the main, main, main points. points. Yeah. yeah. So, 35-year-old, previously well, no other background medical history, first um, pregnancy um, at term and had was going to early labour, had some vomiting associated with that at home and um, just increased her own oral fluid intake particularly water and coconut water sort of estimated about three litres a day or so and um, sort of at home in that phase for maybe a day or two before presenting to um, the family birth centre and then up into the main hospital Um, and then sort of as labour and things progressed and she well she didn't progress she was um Induced with oxytocin infusion and was commenced on the IV hydration um, sort of protocol in inverted commas that um, many labouring women uh, get commenced on. So yep. continued with IV hydration on top of ongoing oral intake with very little, obviously, eating um, solute intake as most labouring women don't eat full meals during labour anyway. Um, and then... Um, went on to have an epidural and was noted by um, one of our colleagues to be quite agitated during that um, and as part of her workup um, beginning for her induction of labour they noted her uh, sodium was 115 um, Wow, that's pretty low, that's 
Very low. Mm. And previous <laughs> bloods, routine bloods, probably from a month or so ago, were obviously <clears throat> normal. So this wasn't okay. a chronic thing to her, for her. We don't know how many days that took to yep. develop, but one can probably assume it was within that 24, 48-hour period. Mm. Um, so we yep. can probably safely call it acute um, and probably acute symptomatic, given that she was agitated and her husband said she wasn't acting normally. Yep. Um, so that's um, ringing a few alarm bells. And then she was managed, and we'll discuss the management um, yeah. for that. And um, and I think that's probably just the that's good. case I, in summary. I think um, it's yeah. a good point to s- just pause here now before we get stuck into further things, just to sort of outline why, what hyponatremia does to your brain and why it's bad, just for some, for, just yep. for revision for some listeners who um, aren't aware of all the implications of that. Yeah, so the, to sort of summarise, it... Really, it's all about the fluid shifts and the fluid shifts in the brain. So sodium is one of the main salts in the body, and if that drops very acutely, um, it will cause um, fluid to shift into the um, cells of the brain and cause cerebral edema. Um, And that's basically because water moves from an area of um, high concentration to low concentration so now water is moving from the bloodstream into the cells that causes swelling, edema and cerebral edema is not well tolerated particularly in young women who have very tight brains and don't have room to swell yep. and that swelling will um, lead to the manifestations of um, sort of severe consequences of cerebral edema like um, at worst seizures, coma respiratory arrest and yep. more mildly, headaches, uh, visual disturbances mm-hmm. and agitation, delirium, confusion. Yep. So there's a progression of symptoms. So from the mild, as you described, the headaches mm-hmm. and the nausea to the severe sort of coma, yep. um, seizures. Um, and so this lady was saying that she is probably severe, given the 115 sodium. Yeah, so the severities, it's sort of an interesting concept anyway because it's not just based on a number, it's based on symptoms really and a number. 115 is really quite low, so that would that definitely would concern me, the number alone. And on top of that, agitation in an, a usually well person, particularly a young female with no background history of anything, is really concerning. Yeah. Yep. And if it occurs acutely, that's um, so the brain the, the brain can sort of compensate if you get hyponatremic over a longer period of time. It's mm-hmm. a, pumps um, the water out of its cells and things, can't it? But if it yeah. happens acutely, then you... you yeah, so sometimes in non-obstetric adult hospitals, you get the little old ladies come in who've yeah. been on diuretics and they're asymptomatic with a sodium of 112 yep. and you're much more careful to treat them. You do it very sort of carefully because their brains have clearly adapted and um, if they're not symptomatic, then, um, you know, it's clearly taken a while for that um, hyponatremia to develop. And... I think you said during your talk as well that sort of old men um, can tolerate it better because we don't have as much brain <laughs> in the box. So any swelling, there's plenty of room in there. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. As you get <laughs> older... there some perks to being a guy, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's old <laughs> and, men and women. Oh, okay. um, right. but, but, yeah, the older you get, the more the brain sort of right. atrophies, the more space you have to swell. And other things like chronic alcohol use and yep. malnutrition and things can also cause... Um, the brain to atrophy a little bit but it really is the high risk population for not having a lot of room for swelling yeah. is is young young, young people, young people and yeah. particularly um females yeah yeah all right 
so that's that's a good summary. Um, so there's a lot of nuance into um, uh, diagnosing it and the principles of managing it and in the, the tests that you do as well. So I think you, you want, do you want to, how do you want to approach that? Do you want to just go through the same way you did when you gave the talk? Yeah, we can start going through that. So, I mean, there are, in the adult non-obstetric world, there are lots of causes of hyponatremia and um, it is actually very complex to work out what the cause is and how you manage it. Um, And there exist, there's lots of algorithms on the internet and most of us have learned them for exams and and that sort of thing, um, which you can follow and go through. For the purpose of this, we're going to focus very much just on peripartum hyponatremia and the two main causes that have been sort of identified in the literature. And on that note, there is very little research in this area because not many people do research on pregnant women and um, so we're very much limited to case studies, case series and a couple of great guidelines that have recently been published. Um, one of them is the GAIN guideline yep. out in um, that coming out of Northern Ireland. Yep. Um, so that's sort of what we've sort of based a lot of the research on and reassuringly the way it is managed is very much in keeping with how you'd manage hyponatremia in the general adult population yeah okay um but yes if it doesn't fit the picture that i'm about to discuss we need to think outside the box and go through those normal algorithms and those normal pathways based on the biochemistry and um, patient risk factors and exam so in pregnancy the two most common causes of hyponatremia are water intoxication or um so basically a dilutional hyponatremia. Yep. So too much water, too much free water in, whether that's IV or oral, and not enough solute in. Um, normally working kidneys, no real other pathology. Part of that yep. is being encouraged to drink lots of water during labour. Um, and part of that is perhaps some of the way we manage um, IV hydration um, as well. And that's. do you think that's <coughs> becoming more common nowadays? Because definitely, you know, there's all these things. It seems to be really common, you know, that people are really encouraged to keep hydrated mm. and some people just overdo it. Yep. They, drink, they drink way more than their kidneys can excrete. Yep. Maybe you can yep. give us some examples as well. So we've talked about water being an example of something if you drink too much of that can cause a hyponatremia, but what's some other things that people commonly get in our birth suite, for example, or f- IV fluids that we might get that can cause this? Yes, that's important. So um, in our case, it was coconut water. Mm. That's probably hypotonic. Not, not a lot of solute in that. Um, apple juice is pretty hypotonic and most drinks really yeah. um, and, and water obviously which most women would be drinking mm-hmm. water and that's why you know when you're dehydrated and particularly with gut losses and that you're encouraged to drink things like Powerade with solutes in it or um, um, the hydrolytes and that kind of thing yeah which has at least some salt in it um, and then IV hydration wise um, many hospitals have shifted to using um uh, balanced crystalloids and Hartman seems to be the one, or CSL seems to be the one that is most commonly used. That is a hypotonic solution. It is. Um, yeah. I think the osmolality is around 240. Uh, so that's hypotonic in itself. And the sodium content is less than normal saline, um, but not substantially. So I think it's around the 120, 130 131. Mark. 131, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Dextrose is used in some places that has gone out of favour a little bit because of the risks of hyponatremia. Yes. Um, but there are probably still places around that are using dextrose um, as an IV hydration during labour, but also with their oxytocin infusions. Mm. And that'll obviously yeah, have a most, much greater impact. Yeah, I think most of the oxytocin infusions are made up with saline here. Yeah, <coughs> or Hartman's. Um, yeah. 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 I think it used to be dextrose, but obviously we've moved away from that. Um, you still get some um, diabetic women who get put on dextrose and mm-hmm. insulin. Um, if, um, we have a lot of diabetics at this hospital, obviously, because... Um, um, because of being referral, so yep. that's that's um, something it, to keep an eye out for. Yeah, definitely an at-risk group, and should yep. have their sodiums um, monitored. Um, so that's that group, and then the other uh, sort of main cause or contributing cause can be the effect of ADH, so antidiuretic hormone, and that is a combination of normal pregnancy physiology and particularly during labour. So we know things like labour pain, um, the contractions, stress hormone release, um, nausea, vomiting, all of that will um, stimulate the brain to increase ADH secretion. Yep. And ADH works on the kidneys, um, as we know, and causes um, fluid retention um, and often salt excretion as well. Um, and that's just a normal, normal human physiology. Uh, and then additional things, iatrogenic things that can increase ADH secretion is like things like surgery, um, whether that's for a caesarean section or um, manual removal or retained products and those sorts of things post delivery as well. Um, and oxytocin as well. What's had, um, isn't that very mm, similar molecule? So how yeah. Does so the oxytocin um, is very similar structurally to ADH and so it will have ADH type effects as well. It will work on the same part of the kidney. It will cause an increase in water retention and salt and they're, excretion. Uh, they're both well. excreted from the same part of the hypothalamus pituitary. Yeah, is that right? Yep. I'm trying to remember mm. my physiology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Posterior pituitary, if I remember correctly. Okay. Well, there you go. Jess is nodding. So okay. we both know something, obviously. My atrophied um, male brain is <laughs> <laughs> still computing. Um, and the and that oxytocin is obviously endogenous during labour. Yep. That is a normal physiological response. But in addition to that, many women get induced with oxytocin um, and or for management of postpartum hemorrhage as well. So yep. there is definitely some iatrogenesis there as well yep. with both an increased fluid load and some exogenous Um, administration as well the big thing from this seems to me to me that um, most women who come in to a hospital for a a labor uh, for a yeah to give birth will have some risk factors for hyponatremia for developing hyponatremia yeah definitely it's definitely very common and uh, my impression is that um it's probably not uh that hyponatremia is a as a complication of labor is not on most people's radar and so um you know we're very careful about or monitoring how much fluid women drink and, and get given intravenously if they have preeclampsia. But in general, outside that specific group, most of the time, um, I don't think it's on the r- people's radar that perhaps no. this person could call, get brain swelling if they overdo it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and so certainly managing fluid balances and recording fluid balance ins and outs or even encouraging women to take note of how much they are passing urine um, and how much they're taking in isn't done routinely and um, Mm. the authors of some of these guidelines are very strongly encouraging to enable or to educate women as well to keep an idea on what's coming in and going out 
um, and also strongly advocate for the use of fluid balance charts, even as part of yep. the partogram. Um, and, and not necessarily for all women, because that's not necessarily feasible for many of these busy centres, but um, a select group of women that can be easily pre-identified. Um, and the ones that um, they suggest we should be monitoring um, routinely are any, any woman on an oxytocin infusion, yep. whether that's for induction of labour or um, augmented labour or PPH. Um, anyone on a dextrose insulin infusion for diabetic reasons, anyone who's got a positive fluid balance of greater than 1.5 litres, um, which isn't which is very much. Quite all, a lot of them. <laughs> which is quite probably quite a lot of our women. Yeah. Um, and that someone needs to notice that, yep. that 1.5 positive, um, and it might be a bit of a combination of the woman herself noticing um, but also perhaps we need to pay a little bit more attention to the IV hydration that's going mm. in um, in addition to the oral. Yep. All right. And and, and a, a sodium that's less than 130 that's just been done on routine bloods. Yep. Um, okay, do you want to talk about the, all the, the workup and treatment? Yeah. Is that next? We can, yeah, I'll, I won't go through all of the complex hyponatremia lab values that we usually go through to work out what the cause is um but basically the principles the principles yeah because people can look that up yeah Yeah. so in pregnancy normal sodium is 130 to sort of 140 145 and in in non-pregnant um adults it's sort of more like the 135 to 145 mark so it's a little bit lower yeah lower is a little bit normal um, but less than 130 is, is hyponatremia. Yep. And if it's sort of 125 to 130, it's probably mild and moderate. There's no sort of strict cutoffs, but I think less than 120 is probably getting more... Um, That's pretty severe, isn't it? It's getting more severe, and particularly yep. if you're adding symptoms into that. Yeah. Um, so anyone who has a sodium of less than 130, particularly if they've got some of those risk factors, um, the tests you need to be doing is a serum osmolality and a urine osmolality and a urine sodium. And that is basically, so that's three tests. It's routinely available in every lab. Um, And in the context of the likely causes of hyponatremia in this patient group, they should be relatively easy to interpret. Just briefly, what's an osmolality? Some people, some of our audience might not have encountered that. Um, I think <laughs> one de- one definition I looked up a while ago was that um, it just basically counts the number of solutes uh, in the blood. Yep. Um, so it measures their concentration, and there's you know there's um, some, I guess, uh, more detail about it whether you do an osmolality osmolarity. But I think we just keep it simple. You measure a serum osmolality, get the concentration of the solutes in the blood, and then that tells you whether the there's more or less total. Um, molecules in the blood than there should be yeah. and that can tell you about the causes of it but as we said we won't go into that too much now yeah and normal uh is sort of around the 285 295 mark in yeah non-pregnant adults and in pregnant women it's probably around the 280 mark so in in this context and in fact in hyponatremia in general almost all cases will be hypoosmolar so yep. you'll get a low serum osmolality it's very uncommon to have a normal or high and if it is uh, it's very helpful because it must be something else yeah there's something else going on it's just diluting the sodium exactly yeah Yeah. um so that's almost always going to be low so that's not going to give you not going to add much except for confirm 
um, that there's some sort of pathology going on. Yep. And then your urine osmols, and then I guess the the only thing to remember here is that is the urine very concentrated or is it very dilute? So 300 is kind of a nice cutoff. If yep. your urine, um, your that solute number, the osmolality is greater than 300, then you've got very concentrated urine. Um, so there's clearly some pathology going on because yeah. the normal um, way to deal with hyponatremia would be to get rid of free water to concentrate the sodium left in the body. Um, and if that is not happening, if the um, kidneys are holding on to all of that fluid to make the urine concentrated, yep. then um, there's probably an ADH type of pathology going on um, in this. Yeah, so if you, yep. if you or I, none of us are, have got any risk factors. If we went out now to the tea room and drank a litre of water, we should be able to wee it out over the next few hours. Mm-hmm. Mm, exactly. But, but if our urine is concentrated, then we have something weird going on. Our physiology is not doing what it should. Yep. yep. And so in, in those women where we're seeing a very concentrated urine, you might be thinking, right, there's probably more of an ADH effect going on here rather than water intoxication although nothing is black and white and most things are multifactorial so yes but that would be more of an adh effect whereas um if we have a very dilute urine so your urine osmols are you know 100 or 200 or something like that and they particularly if they're making lots of urine as well then that more fits that water intoxication picture the kidneys are doing exactly what they need to be doing um and uh, trying to get rid of the free water, and if given the chance to catch up, as in you apply a fluid restriction, these are the patients that will autocorrect quite quickly. Which is sometimes an issue which you'll get onto soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that's one of the important things with yes. doing that quick lab test is working out is the urine concentrated or is it really dilute? Yep. What is the main pathology going on here? Because you, if it's severe, you treat the that you know, emergency management is the same, but in those patients that have dilute urine, that's probably all water intoxication. Um, often, a fluid restriction is enough, and it doesn't need to be that doesn't need to go on for that long because they will autocorrect themselves quite quickly. And you need to pay a lot of attention on relaxing your fluid restrictions as that sodium starts to come up, because it's very easy to overshoot in these patients and overcorrect too rapidly. I think this is a good point now uh, to explain why that's a bad thing. Okay. Why is correcting? You've, you've, we've already just we've just said that um, having you know being too hyponatremic <coughs> causes brain swelling. Yeah. Why would you not want to fix that quickly? So, if you overcorrect, um, again the the brain or the cells, the body cells, um, won't have enough time to um, readjust to those fluid shifts. Uh, and so if you overcorrect and you're suddenly your uh, blood is quite salty again, then you're going to draw all of that fluid back out of those brain cells um, and you're basically going to dry them out and that um, increases the risk of something called osmotic demyelination syndrome, yep. um, which is scary and permanent but uncommon, luckily, and yep. is avoidable um, if we pay attention. And if you do overcorrect... Um, there are ways we can um, adjust that and slow correction or um, sort of take steps backwards um, as yeah. well. Yeah, so you can, you can cause like a permanent brain injury yep. by drying the brain cells yep. out because they've, they've adjusted acutely to that, that swelling and they're yep. trying, they're, 
and they haven't got time to then adjust back to normal. Yeah. What so sort of rate do you go for? Um, so usually we wouldn't uh, want to correct that sodium more than 8 to 10 millimoles per litre in 24 hours. In an acute situation, if it's chronic, um, you need to be even more careful um, and you can correct much more slowly. If you're acute um, or hyperacute, uh, who knows, you might get away with more rapid than 10, but no one's obviously should be willing to test that theory. Yeah. And so in the literature, 8 to 10 is sort of where we're at and people are more conservative in some areas and say 6 to 8. So yep. it's relatively slow. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. In my head, I always had acute as sort of like a few days, less than a week definitely is what I would consider acute. Is that what you guys do roughly as well? It's probably less than 48 hours yeah. and 24 is you've probably got more room to move with mm-hmm. overcorrection. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, but I think on that note, we should just clarify to so the three main risks of hyponatremia. Yep are the hyponatremia itself and the brain swelling causing cerebral edema and the complications of that. Um, are the risk to the neonate, which we're not going to discuss, but no. hyponatremia is a thing in the neonate. So if you mu- if the mother's hyponatremic, so will be the neonate. So presumably they get brain swelling and, and all the other... Fluid shifts fluid and shifts edema and, yep. and all of that as well. Um, and then the third risk is the, the risk of... Um, overcorrection and osmotic right. demyelination. So they're the three things we really worry about with hyponatremia. Okay, that's good. I think we've explained that pretty well. Um, what's next? The management. Yeah, we could probably get on to the management. Um, should we just quickly reiterate? I might just quickly summarise these risk factors okay. in Sounds good. peripartum hyponatremia. Um, so Lower baseline sodium in pregnancy, that's physiological, that's normal, but you might have a little less room to play. Um, The labour-induced and uh, pregnancy-induced effects of increased ADH secretion that we discussed, so pain um, from increased ADH secretion, endogenous oxytocin um, as part of labour, etc. Then... Prolonged labours exacerbates all of that. That is, in, that is also a risk factor for hyponatremia, probably also because they get more accumulation of IV hydration yep. fluids and not eating and, and those sorts of things. Um, the oxytocin augmentation or management of PPH um, and then the excess of oral and intravenous fluids. And in particular in the literature they say if the fluid balance is greater than 1.5 litres positive, then there's a much higher risk of developing hyponatremia um, and in some of the studies they looked at if um, the woman had re- received only a litre of IV hydration, the risk of hyponatremia was extremely low in the water of 1%. Yep. And if they had received over, um, I think it was two or three litres, then the risk increases to 26%. So um, okay, really so quite significant substantial. Drum, yep. jump. Yep. Yep. Um, they list neuroaxial analgesia as mm. well. That might purely be associated with the IV hydration that is often yeah, co-administered. I suspect so. And and dextrose infusions are a known risk factor as well. Yep. All right. Management? Yeah, yep. Um, All right. So what should we do? Let's go back to that case we presented. So we've got an agitated, sort of cerebrally irritated person who's not acting normal with a sodium of 115. So I would classify that as a severe case. Um, There's definitely some symptoms there and some symptoms that I would find 
concerning and a number that I find concerning as well. Um, So that, for me, hit hit the severe category. Um, So there are three main things you do for these severe patients is you fluid restrict them, and probably at this level quite significantly. Um, this The GAIN guideline um, suggests fluid restricting to 30 mils an hour. That's quite uh, aggressive, which is probably what this patient needs, yep. which is something like 700 mils in the day or something like that. Um, and that's oral and IV, I imagine? Yeah, combined. Mm. Yeah, so usually you, you should stop all IV hydration, hypotonic or yeah. isotonic, until you work out what's going on. Because if... If, it's, if the patient is going back to the physiology and working out what the cause is, if it's more of an ADH kind of cause, even if you give them normal saline, if, it's, if there's lots of ADH effect going on, the kidneys are working like a desalination plant. They are going to retain all of that water, pee out salt, and you're going to dilute them further, and yep. the sodium can potentially so drop. So it's a sort of false sense of security. That Correct. That's, that's, normal that's saline that's is isotonic. It, 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 in those patients, it can potentially reduce your sodium further and cause more yep. trouble. Um, and so in this sort of more emergent setting, the safest thing to do is you stop all your isotonic, hypotonic fluids, you fluid restrict them and give hypotonic saline, um, which we can discuss in more detail as well. Yeah, definitely, because um, I think most listeners, and certainly well, most of the anaesthetic department here at King, we're very unfamiliar with it, mm. um, but it sounds, like when you described it last, yeah, the, a few weeks ago, it sounds like it's more simple than we thought it is and in this setting it is very safe because you're not um <clears throat> the doses you give are only aiming to correct your serum sodium by two to four millimoles per litre so a yep. very small amount the whole aim of it is just to get you out of trouble da- out of the danger zone get out of the danger zone and into the safe zone and if that's you know 115 to 119 usually if they're around the 119 120 mark all your symptoms should resolve and you're back into the safe zone yep. and your fluid restrictions and working out what's going on um, should then take care of the rest and slowly um, correct over the next 24 hours. So, yeah, so, so tell us a bit more about hypotonic saline and how doses, strengths and how, how to administer it. Yeah, so it depends on the hospital you work in. Um, most places are familiar with 3%. Yep. Um, 3% saline, but... Um, for cost reasons, some places don't stock that anymore and you have to dilute down your own and you end up with something like 23.4% saline in vials. <laughs> but, um, Doing maths when you're, example, when you're in, a, in, a, in an unfamiliar situation, it always makes me think it's not a good idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in, in, in this hospital, yes, there is 3%. It okay. is available in pharmacy, um, which isn't always ideal because... If your pharmacy is not open after hours and you need to call someone in to get it, that is not an emergency drug. Um, But anyway, 3%, you're aiming to increase 2.5 to 4 millimoles a litre, so not very much. Um, The standard dose is about 2 mils per kilo, um, which for most people is around 150 mils. So some places just say give 150 mils. Um, I think if you've got a smaller patient, I would probably just calculate two mils per kilo, and you can probably give a little bit more if you've got a really, really large um, woman as well and a very low number. Um, yep. And and if you actually go down and do the maths with your ideal body weights multiplied by your fluid, your body water, and all of that, those numbers and those millimoles all make sense, and it does yep. all sort of fit and add up. Um, Skip, it's, it's safe given peripherally. Um, usually okay. you administer it over about um, 20 minutes. 
Okay. So, okay. so, so 150, 150 mils, mils over, 20 minutes. over 20 minutes peripherally. Um, it's not that concentrated. It's not going to cause thrombophilitis or anything. Um, and you would repeat your sodium levels in about an hour or two, probably one yep. to two hours. Um, it can be repeated, but it's uncommonly needed. Yeah. So it sounds like you just need to do, do it once to get them in the safe zone, and yep. then and then you want to sl- just using fluid restriction and things to slowly get them better. The yep. rest of it, correct it uh, yep. over a few days. That's yep. right. Um, and if you're in an emergent setting where your patient's severely symptomatic, like for example seizing, not for any other reason, or um, mm-hmm. have a reduced GCS and their sodium is one of those low numbers, less than 115, uh, and it's after hours and you can't get the 3%, or the 3% is just going to take too long. Like in a seizing patient, you don't want to wait 30 minutes for something that's going to yeah. take 20 minutes to infuse. Um, so a really great option in these situations is using um, sodium bicarb um, because there's a very high sodium content in that, obviously. And in Australia, I think in most places actually, um, you either have 50 mil or 100 um, yep. mil vials in every every emergency cart on most of the wards. Yep. Um, and there's one millimole of sodium per mil. So if you have the 100 mil vial, you have 100 millimoles of sodium. Um and so if you want to just do your um, – so when we talked about the 3%, the 150 mils is about 75 millimoles if you do the maths. Okay. So you just give 75 mils. Of the home. Or you can give the whole vial if they're – If they're seizing. If they're seizing <laughs> and it's probably still going to be safe. Okay. That's yeah. good because we have a lot of sodium bicarb. We, we use it, we use yeah. it for um, – mix the lignocaine with it to, oh. to speed up the onset of blocks. Mm. So we have it in theatre. It's in most, yeah, as you said, it's like in most emergencies. It's in most emergencies. Mm-hmm. critical care areas. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. interesting. So probably three-quarters of a vial or one vial in someone who's... You can't yep. wait. Mm. Okay, and good. If you can't wait, yeah, exactly. And then how often do you uh, repeat the sodium? Let's say you've got up to 120. How often would you then monitor the sodium? Yeah, so in all these severe cases, so, um, or, you know, if your sodium's sort of less than 125 or less than 120... I'd be doing sodium levels every two hours anyway just to monitor if if what you're doing is... This is even in the absence of severe symptoms, even yep. if your number's just low and they're at risk of, of it getting worse, then um, you'd probably do two-hour sodium levels. You'd also discuss with the team, right, so the obstetricians, the neonatologists, the anaesthetists, or um, if they've got severe symptoms, probably a critical care intensivist sort of person needs to to know about it as well to make a a plan. Um, And the other thing they do is um, suggest is stop oxytocin infusions. So as soon as you hit that that category of less than 125, um, then you stop your oxytocin um, as well. That would be, I guess that's challenging, isn't it, sometimes, because there's mm. uh, obstetric and, um, well, prepartum and postpartum, there's yeah. obstetric conditions that sometimes um, it would be nice to use oxytocin. But mm. And that's why it should be a multidisciplinary yeah. discussion and, and management plan uh, as well. Uh, and then once you've treated, yeah, you probably just continue sort of two hourly sodiums until you... Um, know you're trending in a safe rate and things are going in the right direction, the patient's symptoms have improved uh, and just continue fluid restrictions. And and in these women where it is probably more water intoxication, you may need to reassess your fluid restrictions several times in that 24-hour period. It can't just be, right, we're going to restrict to 1.5 litres or 1 litre a day and leave it for 24 hours because before you know it, you might 
overshoot quite substantially. They sh- at yeah, some point. Yeah, because you don't want their, their sodium of 114 to suddenly be 135 mm. um, in less than yep. 24 hours. So what would you do if you think it's starting to correct too quickly in someone who, who, who could make dilute urine, you know, one of these women who probably had water intoxication more than, any, than anything else? Yeah, so if it looks like it's starting to trend <coughs> up too quickly, um, so say you're six hours in from that low value that you've, um, that lowest yep. value that you've seen, um, in a severe case they may have received their um, 3% um, saline and say, so we'll use our case, we've gone from 115 to... 119 after that after two hours um and say six hours later we're looking at sort of 125 so we're already at 10 um because the patient's autocorrecting they've literally diureasing like 500 mils an hour which is not uncommon because their kidneys are very functional um then you just need to reduce their water restrictions so, so they can drink to, drink. to thirst. Yeah. In fact, you would be actively, if we've already hit your, t- your 10 millimoles, you'd be actively encouraging the intake of water or hypotonic um, drinks like apple juice and, and things like that. Um, in some circumstances, you might even consider some IV dextrose to slow things down. You'd probably want to calculate how much you're giving a little bit um, yeah. And there are some calculations out there. <laughs> yeah. So it but would need a little bit more thought. Yeah. Um, but hopefully with can with encouraging oral intake, you can slow or reverse that. Can you give them DDAVP or desmopressin? What's the story there? Yeah, absolutely. So, so would that be safer than, than trying to guess how much fluid to give fluid them to back? Give. Or guestimate. Or guestimate, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, yes, you can. And it's something that in... Uh, certainly in the non-obstetric population with overcorrection of hyponatremia, we do in the ICU. Yep. Um, so desmopressin works um, in that same part of the kidney that the ADH does and essentially just prevents yeah. um, it, it prevents any um, further excretion of um, free water, essentially. So the kidneys, once again, start holding on to all of that fluid. So they call it the DDAVP clamp. Yep. And essentially Just what it can do is it, down for a while. it can give you complete control. Yeah, and how long is it? Because we give it for von Willebrand, so I'm familiar with sort of giving it, but um, how long does the the sort of um, water clamp last for? Probably around eight hours, six okay, to eight so hours, something not, like that. Because that's good. So, so it's like it's, te- usually, it's temporary. Yeah, yeah, like two mics. Um, one of the um, sort of protocols yeah. Liberate is sort of two mics, eight hourly, but... I'd honestly just give one dose and then see what happens and see if you can get control yeah. of the situation, slow things down. And if you've overcorrected and um, you've given you two mics and the urine outputs slowed as you had expected um, and you're encouraging oral intake and then the next sodiums come down two millimoles, then great, you might just continue that um, mm. just to get get yeah. that average rate of change um, into a safe spot. You might not need to redose. But I'd probably, like if that was an unfamiliar practice, I would um, recommend discussing that with um, yeah. an intensive care unit and someone that is familiar with doing that just to get a really nice yeah, um, yeah. Yep. Uh, sort of step-by-step guideline of what how one might manage that. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, I think once you're getting... This, uh, into a case like that, you should be definitely getting people who are familiar with managing it on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. I feel like um, we've covered most things. Is there anything we haven't covered? Because if we have covered everything, we should do some sort of take-home points. Mm. So I feel like, um, 
yeah, what do you what do you think the take home points are for someone who's listened to this who's never even heard that this is an issue? We'll, we'll put a, a copy of the game. Is it the game guideline from yeah. Northern, from Northern Ireland? Mm-hmm. They've uh, got a on, on great the flow chart and um, a couple of tables. So if you're listening factors. to this podcast, you can click on the link that goes to a web page, and we'll have the uh, references to that and anything else that Jess thinks is relevant. Yeah, um, yeah. I think um, for me, the big take home message for everyone would be just take note of fluid balance and yep. ins and outs. Um, because a lot of these cases are completely avoidable. Yeah, yeah. I guess just maybe just awareness that it's a thing. Like it's I think it flies under the ra- flies under the radar for yeah. a lot of um, people who work in this and uh, yeah. energy area. And for most women, it's not a, not an issue. They'll self-correct. It'll be mild. Um, but there will be cases, and there are more and more cases reported where. Um, it can be a severe issue both for the woman, the neonate, and their risk of overcorrection as well. So yep. <coughs> yeah. um, prevention is better than. Yeah, yeah that's right. This is the other managing way around. It's very, yeah. It sounds very labour intensive mm-hmm. and complicated. Mm-hmm. You're doing all these um, blood tests and urines and monitoring them for the, a couple yeah. of days really closely mm-hmm. to try and safely get them back to normal. And I think can if you can think about IV hydration or IV fluids as a drug, as you would as a drug, then that's a very safe way of um, dealing with them because I think um, not outside of probably the ICU world, um, where we consider IV hydration as a drug, um, it's probably um, a bit more liberally used <coughs> without an awful lot of thought because it's common and everyone does it. And Yeah, I agree. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot more nuance to infusing salty water into someone then you realise I feel like there's another podcast in there <laughs> there's probably another 10 yeah. there's, whole, there's whole people have built careers on, oh. on this <laughs> anyway th- thanks for a really fascinating discussion mm. and uh, I hope it's raised some awareness certainly the, there's lots of things I've learnt from you from me talking from the from the podcast today so thanks Jess same yeah thanks, thanks. for coming in and Jess has just recovered from COVID for the second time so mm-hmm. It's good of her to come in. She's looking pretty sprightly, though. It doesn't look like it was a severe yep. case. No, no, it was pretty mild. <laughs> Do you think it was your toddler that gave it to you? Definitely. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, he definitely. He would have got it from school, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Kindy. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you. listening everyone please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to see you again next time the opsandgyne crit care podcast would like to acknowledge the wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to Elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.